Yes, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the None But The Brave podcast. I'm Hal Schwartz, and I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, how's it going tonight? I'm doing pretty well. It was great seeing you and uh, and a bunch of our other friends at the uh, at the Little Steven show at the Beacon last week, and uh, it was great to, to, to talk to people about what we're doing here. Yeah, it was it was a good time, and uh, Steve put on a good show. He did a nice version of Tucson Train and the Encores, and you're definitely right. I had a, quite a number of people come over to me and say they've been listening to the podcast, which was really gratifying, and we appreciate that. Yeah, very humbling, too. And as we move ahead, I want to set the table for what we're going to be doing for the rest of the year. This is going to be our last regularly scheduled episode of 2019. And then what we're going to do is before the holidays, we're going to do a what I assume will be a pretty long episode that looks at the decade in review as it pertains to what Bruce has been doing. Yes, it's been uh, he's been quite productive this day, this decade between a couple of box sets, a couple of tours, uh, a film, a play, a, a play. A play. Uh, the book, it's it's he hasn't exactly been sitting on his laurels over the last decade. No, he has definitely been very, very active, and we're going to take a look at everything that's occurred. There's been a lot of interesting stuff, and of course, at the very start of the decade, a very devastating loss in the E Street world, which was the death of Clarence and everything that followed from that. So we're going to be looking forward to doing that. But tonight's topic is going to look at a time when there was quite a bit less activity. Uh, that quite a bit is an understatement. There was next to zero. <laughs> Bruce disappeared. Uh, we will start on October 15th, 1988, which is the final date of the Amnesty Tour when the E Street Band concluded their touring for the year. And then Bruce basically disappeared for almost four full years. Well, in that f- the first year, um, he, he's he's allowed to disappear. He's allowed to recover from from, t- from recording and, t- and, and touring. And so that first year wasn't exactly a surprise, uh, but he did he did pop up at the Jersey Shore quite a bit in the summer of '89. Yeah, in fact, that's the first time I ever saw him at the Pony on July 1st with La Bamba. I was with my buddy Roger. It's one it's one of the great nights of my life. Uh, <laughs> Billy Smith, the uh, old owner of the Asbury Park Rock and Roll Museum. We had met him earlier in the day and he was standing next to us and he kept telling us we were young. In fact, I was underage. I shouldn't admit that. Uh, uh, but uh, we, we he was standing next to us at the show saying, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then at about 10 to 2, right before closing time, suddenly the door swung open in the hot, sweaty pony on a summer night. And there was Bruce on stage and like 10 feet in front of us. It was it was just overwhelming at the time. You know, we were kids. So uh, and he did do a lot of Jersey Shore bar hopping that summer. And then which sets the tone for our episode, he actually picks up and he moves to California. Uh, yes, he does. He uh, as he later described it in the in the world that Rolling Stone interview in 92, he felt like uh, Santa Claus at the North Pole. So felt like he needed to, to get another start. And I'm sure he goes into it or I know he goes more into it in the book, but uh, he just wanted to get away. Now, and for fans, it was a rather agonizing period when he really was pretty much gone. I mean, we'll get to the Christic. That's the only major public appearance he makes for, I think, over three and a half years. And once he moves to California, of course, there's major stuff going on in his life. Uh, he and Patty have a baby. They get married. So they have, it, a, they it, have another baby. They have another <laughs> baby. Yes. Yeah, so there was a lot going on for, in them personally. But for a rock star in the heart of his career, he really did step back and take what was a pretty long hiatus. And in, in addition to all the stuff going on in his personal life, he was certainly making a major professional change 
uh, as well when he he told the E Street Band that he would not be using using them on his next project. Yeah, I, I remember that very vividly when that news broke. Now, we know it dates to, he told them in October of 1989. I remember, I think it was in November when the fans actually learned about it. And it, it was a very confusing time because obviously the E Street Band and Bruce, they were linked. Uh, it, there was, uh, people couldn't even conceive of Bruce without the band. And here he was making a very bold statement that he was going to move on without them. And then everyone was really wondering what he was going to do next. And of course, that was exacerbated by the length of time that passed before he would finally put out some new music. Now, I remember when I hearing about it on the Backstreet's Boss hotline at the time um, that, you know, there was speculation was, does he already know what he's going to do? Or was he just, did he have any idea of what he wanted to do then? I mean, was he... You know, the, the thinking was, did he have a project in mind that he just he knew the band wasn't going to be right for or would or did he just have no clue on what he wanted to do? And I think it was probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I would agree. It was probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, we know from Bruce Bass that recording commenced on what ultimately would become Human Touch in September of 1989. So that actually is before the calls were made, as we understand it. I think that he must have had in mind that he was going to use these studio musicians and they had already come to California and he was set up and recording in various locations in Los Angeles. So he must have been ready to move on. But for the fans, as I said, it was a little bit confusing, especially as the lengthy period went on before a record finally emerged. Yeah, I, I don't think fans fully processed what that meant what the the firing or dismissal of the band really meant until he hit the road uh, in, in June of 1992 with with a totally different gr group of musicians. They were they were actually even different than what had recorded most of the album. It, it did wind up that ultimately the band that was on stage was not really anyone who was involved in the sessions, except, of course, for Roy. But we'll get to that in a moment. Right. And actually, I want to point out along the timelines is that the, the first recording that Bruce did without the band in the studio was Viva Las Vegas. And he did that. Uh, it was like mid-September of 89. But I don't think any of his original compositions that would end up on Human Touch or tracks were even recorded until like November or, or even December. I was not aware of that. And how detailed is the information? Do you know? I mean, we know the sessions on Human Touch ran from September 1989 to approximately March of 91. Do we have a breakdown of what was recorded when within that time frame? Well, we have Bruce Bass, and they pretty much have it broken down as as specific as they can. Uh, again, as I'm looking at it, Viva Las Vegas was recorded September 13th and 14th in 89 in Hollywood. And that's the earliest recording date. A lot of them are December 89, such as Roll the Dice, Trouble in Paradise. Real World was recorded at that time, Man's Job. So really, I don't think... You know, I get the feeling that he he was still between what he wanted to do and maybe working with those musicians for those couple of days for Viva Las Vegas really, you know, whetted his appetite or at least made it clear to him that that he needed or for whatever reason he needed to go on without that without the East Street Band. Well, and the thing about Viva Las Vegas, that was a song that I he had probably already committed to and the compilation did come out in February. So there wouldn't have been a lot of time for him to put that together and still get it on the record and and have them get that Elvis tribute out. And I imagine he was a big component of it. He was Bruce Springsteen. 
Right. It was, I think him and Paul McCartney were the two biggest names on The Last Temptation of Elvis. That was a good set. I remember when that came out. And that, of course, was the first release without the band where Bruce was working with musicians that we did not really know. I think it was a cover that it sounded like you would have expected whether he recorded it with the band or with someone else. And I don't know that that really gave us a big tip off as to where he was going in a, in a musical direction. No, not at all. It was just a fun little, little cover he did. I mean, he, he probably could have done everything himself, <laughs> uh, but uh, he decided to put it out there. And, and that represented exactly one half of his studio output uh, released between 1988 and, and 1991. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's stunning if you think about it, that uh, especially now when there's so much material coming out with the monthly archives, with multiple albums, that in the heart of his career, when he was in his early 40s, the man released two songs total, and one of them was Chicken Lips and what? What? what how do you pronounce Chicken that? Chicken Lips, Chicken <laughs> Lips, and Lizard Hips. Yeah, that was not exactly, uh, and that was, of course, was a kid at, for a kids album. So I joke around a bit because it was it, he had just had children, and it certainly was appropriate under the circumstances, but not exactly uh, big time rock and roll. No, and and we kind of add to that. He so he releases two songs. But in a four-year span, they're both covers, and I think that between between them, I don't think they lasted more than five and a half minutes. Yeah, I think the uh, the Chicken Lips is a very short song; it's under two minutes, and and you know it's one forty-two according to Bruce Bass. Okay, so and then would you have Viva Las Vegas time there too? Yeah, three eleven. See, night. See, four was that less than five. Yeah. I mean, in a way, and certainly we know from his discussions in the book, he was trying to get his life together. So you can't blame him as a person. I mean, you understand what was going on and what was trying to be accomplished and why they picked up and moved and all that. But still, it is, I think, very unusual for a star of that caliber in the prime of his career. You know, if, if, if he went away in his 60s for four years, which, of course, he really didn't, no, he you would have did said, OK, you know, that's understandable. The guy's winding down here. He was in his early 40s. He turned 40 in 1989 and he was basically invisible. Well, John, John Landau was uh, quoted as saying, and I read this read this on Bruce Space, is that Bruce really didn't do any songwriting between the end of the Amnesty tour and basically I guess through through August of '89, so there was some kind of writer's block there, and which obviously would was going to make the next project quite quite challenging. Well, and he has discussed that, and we know that's in part how Roy winds up getting back in the fold with Bruce. Yeah, so he uh, he called up Roy. They had dinner, and I guess Bruce said that he's having some some writer's block issues. And next thing you know, Roy bins in the studio with him, and uh, and that's how you end up with with Roy's music credit on uh, Roll the Dice in Real World. And of course, the original version of Soul Driver that, that circulated anyway was it was a bit in musical composition. Yeah, and Roy winds up getting credits on these songs, which is the first time on any of Bruce's records that anyone other than himself had received credit. Well, hold on here. You got uh, Bye Bye Johnny from- uh, But that wasn't from- on a record. No, it wasn't. But Bruce still co-credited Chuck Berry as the writer, or had yes. to, or had to do it anyway. Right. So well, that was on B side, though. That was on a B side, and of course, it would end up on tracks. But 
And then you got also on on Human Touch, you got the you got Cross My Heart, which he he stole the or borrowed the first few lines from Sonny Boy Williamson. Yes, they gave him credit there, but right. it, it, it those are in part rewritten covers. Yes, uh, yes, I the, think the, the Springsteen bidden compositions are new songs. So yeah, this is the first time that Springsteen collaborated with someone else as a partner to work on a new song. Now, it, what becomes interesting is that, and when we hear it, Roll the Dice actually sounds exactly like an E Street Band song. Obviously, Roy is on there, and he's a large part of the E Street Band sound, but it wasn't exactly breaking new ground. No, and I think that that was one of the complaints or one of the concerns that people had, at even at the time, was that he, he let the band go to basically continue to make the same kind of music. And... And, and I and that's that's it's it's funny because I mean he Bruce was still stuck he was he wasn't totally ready to to jettison the rock style that he had created for himself over the past you know nearly twenty years but he wasn't and he wasn't quite ready to go full blown into a totally different direction I agree with you there that he wasn't really ready to take that step at least as it pertains to the record. Now, he does agree to do the Christic Institute shows, and when he shows up to do those shows, he is doing a set that is quite a bit different than what we've seen when he's been with the band. Now, of course, he is solo, and the only other major solo set he had done in recent times was the Bridge Benefit, but I think this is pretty distinct from that. Well, yeah, even at the at the Bridge show, he had Nils and Danny with him for, I mean, almost almost the entire show. So this is really the first time he's gone 100% solo, you know, since the since he, he did the coffee houses that he supposedly did in the early 70s. Yeah, I th and this wound up being a very big set of nights. Uh, you could really legitimately say legendary. Uh, of course, they have released these shows as an archive, appropriately so. He, he debuts six new songs during these shows, and he also brings back quite a number of songs that you wouldn't necessarily expect for him to play at that point in time. Well, before we start talking about the set list, I just want to point something out. Yeah. When he did these shows, it had been 25 months, two years and a month since his last announced show. This was That was the biggest drought of announced performances ever. And I think it's it's difficult to to explain what that feels like in the in, the, in these days of Bruce's playing uh, stand up for heroes every year and he's playing the rainforest every couple years. It was just a 25 month drought of no Bruce on stage, at least officially. Yeah, as we noted, I mean, there were the summer appearances in the on the shore, but that's really distinct from something like this, both artistically and in terms of the type of coverage they're going to get. Here, he takes the stage. It's in Los Angeles. It's a major set of shows, and people are waiting to see what he's going to do. Yeah, it's been, it had been, as I said, two years since he played with anybody officially. <laughs> and he, he had, it's in that time he had, he had broken up the band. He had gotten married, had a baby, and we had the rumors of the studio work. So, really, nobody knew what to expect at all. I unfortunately did not see those shows. I know you didn't either. I did not. Uh, which is a major regret of mine. I wish I had gotten on a plane. I was living in New York at the time. But when we did hear the shows on bootleg and from the reports that we got from people who were there, I mean, this was, it, it was an event and it was, it was a major league performance by Bruce. Yes, it was. I have some friends who, who, who were there and they've just, they just talked about how just amazing it was just to be in that room. 
There were six songs that he debuted over the two nights. The first night he debuted Redheaded Woman, 57 Channels, When the Lights Go Out, and the big event of the night, which was Real World. And on the second night, he added in The Wish and Soul Driver. Yeah, and that was that was major news at the time. That's just to say the least, that the new songs and they were, and Real World was just was just amazing was let it was instantaneously legendary yeah real world was a song that had springsteen classic written all over it it had the passion i think it was a natural succession in a way from tunnel of love but it clearly reflected the changes that had been going on in his life and it just that was a major major moment and the other songs i mean soul driver which i thought was a really stark interesting version and of course the wish one of the few songs as he says written about a rock star's mom <laughs> yeah and of and, course, he just had and he just had fun with redheaded woman. Yeah, and that has of course stuck around for many years. Yes, and then fifty seven channels, which um, you know it was really fun then. How about that? Now can the I say other, that diplomatically, <laughs> you can say that diplomatically. The other thing that happens at this show, which hadn't happened in a long time, is that he sits down at the piano, and that yields some really great moments, especially the Tenth Avenue. Oh, and to me the. The Thunder Road, where he forgets the words that first night, and and the audience sings the rest of the song with him, and that and that's unfortunately not reflected very well in the archive release. Uh, but if you go, if you can find an audience recording, that is that's that's a spine tingling moment right there. And night two, uh, Soul Driver, which I mentioned being very stark, is followed by State Trooper and Nebraska, which is that's a very powerful trifecta. Well, and then certainly you just throw in the fact that after he hadn't really even looked at Nebraska in five years because uh, he didn't play anything on the Tunnel of Love tour. No, and uh, of course, Wild Billy Circus Story, which was played the first night appropriately leading into Nebraska, hadn't been played, I think, since the early 70s. Yeah, at least 74, if not, uh, yeah, 74. So he really took these shows to be uh, an exploration of his catalog and of this new material. And people were really, really excited by what they heard. Oh, absolutely. It was it. People really took it as as a new Bruce and that he really was going in a totally different direction. And, you know, we were the high, hopes that we had some high hopes for that for that next album. Yes, we did. And as for the show itself, I mean, his performance was so he showed an emotional vulnerability that we had never seen before. And I mean, almost like we didn't see it again until until Broadway. Uh, especially the story he told about uh, when he was introducing my father's house, where he talked about he actually going to see a psychiatrist. So he he admitted to to seeking help, which is it was a big step. And then he talked about driving back to his old neighborhood and you know trying to, you know he he doesn't know what he's doing and but the his psychiatrist says you know you're trying to you're trying to make it better and or trying to make it right and you know you can't and. We, we we kind of talked about that on the on the Western Stars uh, episode. Yes, we did. So I always thought that was that was a pretty intense moment. And then of course, the just his nervousness as he was introducing the wish, talking about how you know, and even in rap and, and rock music, you don't really talk about your mother very much unless you're Elvis. <laughs> I always love that. The other thing I want to mention in terms of the vulnerability in real world, really to me, is the major moment of these shows. There's a vulnerability in that song as he's singing and obviously heading into the real world that really, uh, w would you say was like his heart on his sleeve? 
that's a good way to put it. He he was certainly he wasn't hiding, and just as he says in the song, I don't want to hide no more. And he really was putting everything on that table. And as the shows unfolded, he seemed so emotionally on edge. I mean, we're so used to Bruce being uh, such a confident performer, and that was really lacking here a little. Oh, absolutely. We just this was not the not the cocky Bruce that that we're used to seeing, and certainly even up to that point, he. Um, his confidence was, was a little rusty, to, to quote a, another song he wrote around the same time. There's, of course, the famous moment in Springsteen Circles where a fan yells out, Bruce, we love you, and he responds with, you don't really know me. And, of course, just opening the shows by saying, if you're, if you're moved to clap along, please don't. It really showed him that, really showed us that he seemed to be pretty nervous about coming out, and whether it was first time really without any kind of band behind him or this, his new place in life, or maybe he was going through a pretty intense uh, period of therapy. We, we don't know, but he definitely shows, showed some uh, vulnerability there that we hadn't, we had never seen before. He certainly seemed to be a performer who was lacking in the confidence that he had had for so many years prior to that. And I think that that, as we leave the Christic shows now and, we, we move back towards the road to human touch, that impacts what's happening now for the next year as well, I think, because basically he puts together a group of songs, he's getting ready to release a record, and then they don't release it. Well, I, mean, I remember at the time there were just tons of rumors coming, from those, coming, coming out of those shows, like the new album's going to be out in three months, one of the singles, the first single from the album he, 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 did, he did on at the shows. And of course, none of that, none of that happened. And we kept, I remember I kept calling up the, you know, the Backstreet's Boss hotline, hoping to hear new album coming out, you know, in two months, but nothing ever came of it. Now, interestingly, on July 12th, 1991, I, I did get a little inside information because we were at McLoon's Rum Runner, which was a place where Bruce used to occasionally show up and play. And Bobby Bandier was playing. And sure enough, Bruce and Patty and some other people walked in and uh, Bruce ultimately took the stage and played a, a great five song set. It was a real thrill. I mean, that place was tiny, but Mike Patty's brother actually starts talking to us and telling us, and this is in July of 91, that Bruce has finished a record and it should be coming out probably by the end of that year. And we got- Well, well, well half of that was true. Yeah. <laughs> And we, we got really excited. And then as the year went on, still, still no record. And nothing, the, nothing, the, nothing at all. So Tunnel had come out in October of 1987. And now we were beyond four years without a record. Yeah, that's four years. That's an eternity in, in, in rock music. And at the time, it, it was a little bit different because now everything is so pervasive. You know, back then you were on the radio. You were either on like a Saturday Night Live or something, or you were not there. And or he MTV. was- MTV, yeah, MTV, right. How can I when, forget that? And well, if you when, weren't when, on MTV, forget it. You you were like, in, it was like you didn't exist. And exactly. and here was a guy who had, wasn't putting out anything new. And also important to point out, the industry was starting to change right around the same time that Bruce is recording Human Touch. Nirvana is recording Nevermind and Pearl Jam is recording 10 and the whole rock world shifts. Grunge hit in the fall of 91. Yeah. And that was when uh, Teen Spirit just exploded, and as you said, Pearl Jam, and then Soundgarden. That whole the whole grunge scene just exploded out of Seattle and taking over the entire world, basically. You know, I, I kind of wonder 
something I actually, I actually posed, the question I posed on, on the Backstreet's message board, BTX, would Human Touch have been better received had it come out before the, the, grunge, the grunge explosion? I think it would have. And I think ultimately, had the gap been shorter, Human Touch would have been better received. Now, we can never take Human Touch just on its own, because as we know, shortly after all these events, in late 1991, suddenly Bruce decides that he's got another album in him, and he records what becomes Lucky Town, and they put them out on the same day. So we can't even assess Human Touch had it come out on its own. And what we do know is I think this is a pretty universal opinion that Human Touch is the lesser of the two records. Right. Um, as I as I said earlier, when uh, when you were talking about t- talking about what Michael Scalfa told you, that Bruce had finished an album that was coming out by the end of the year. I mean, he was half right. Bruce had finished the group of songs that would become Human Touch I guess, sometime in late spring of 91. And he just he. I guess they finished it, but they couldn't quite turn it into the label. They weren't quite ready to, to just let it go yet. And while Bruce, I guess, while, while Bruce was still pondering what he was going to do, he uh, his son was born. Evan was born. No, Evan was born in 1990. So, but apparently, he wrote "Living Proof" during right after finishing the Human Touch album. And from there, you're right. The 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 ten songs on uh, on Lucky Town just rolled out of them. Yeah, and it's a much more cohesive album, I think, than Human Touch winds up being. Oh, absolutely. It's 100% a more cohesive album. So these records now complete. He's got two records. Jessica's born late in 91. They finally do set forth to release a record. And in fact, there's a huge surprise when they announce to the public, much like Guns N' Roses had done previously, he's going to release two records on the same day, March 31st, 1992. Right, and I have to... I have to wonder what would have happened if Guns N' Roses hadn't done that. I mean, I, Bruce, Bruce Inc. is, they're not exactly the most groundbreaking of, of organizations. And so how, what would they have done? I think that they would have had to pick one of the two records. I think Guns N' Roses set a precedent. Guns N' Roses was so big at the time. I mean, oh, they, they, were, were, they were huge. I'm not, I'm not arguing yeah. that. I mean, I think they're, no, but what I mean, I'm saying is, you know, Guns N' Roses basically could do whatever they wanted. And Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 were much more tied together, I think, than Human Touch and Lucky Town were. Yeah, they, that was more, those were more of a double album than than Human Touch and Lucky Town would have been. What happened here was that Bruce really did release two totally separate and distinct albums at the same time. And the fact that they were not tied together, I think, harms Lucky Town because the reception is mixed to say the least and i think a lot of that was really directed at human touch the album yes see i was going to say that because the lead single was from human touch i think the lucky town album well they were sort of co-lead singles right i mean human touch and better days well let's just say that that human touch was a seemed to be it was a top 10 hit and better days i don't know if it really cracked the the top 40 that's true. And Human Touch had a video in Better Days did not, or, uh, it did later on, but not right at the start when they were first released. Right. You know, they really rolled out everything as you were supposed to at the time with the video premiering and and the, the single hitting radio all about the same time, along with the announcement of, of, uh, of the albums. And, you know, I think that because Human Touch was a hit, was the hit song, that people focused on that album. And, and again, I and again, Lucky Town gets kind of gets the short end of the stick. 
Interestingly enough, it does appear that Bruce himself knows where the stronger material is as they start moving towards the tour, because when he does Saturday Night Live on May 9th, he does three songs. Two of the songs are Living Proof and Lucky Town, and the third song is 57 Channels. So right there, they were fo- they were focusing more on Lucky Town, and with good reason, because those were two outstanding performances. Right, and I think people want to forget about that performance of 57 Channels. That was pretty bizarre. <laughs> it was unusual, to say the least, or to be charitable. So let's talk about Human Touch, the record, more directly, Flynn. What are some of your favorites here? Well, obviously the title track, Human Touch, uh, and I really like Roll the Dice. Uh, even though it's has kind of a generic sound, I always I, I love that that rock and sound. What can I say? And I think the one of the the criminally overlooked song on on this album is is with every wish. I For just sure. Think, you know, I it's it, the songwriting is very concise and it really does tell the story of wh- how he was feeling about with every wish. About, you know, there comes there come there comes side effects and There's a price. There's a price you pay, exactly. And I always felt that his diverse about falling in love with beautiful Doreen was, that was pretty much his own story there. And that was almost kind of like a, like an apology to her, to Julianne in, in some fashion. I thought it was such a shame with all the many hundreds of songs he's played in recent years when he had Kurt Rahm on stage that they never did with Every Wish. Well, you know, I don't think it would have worked with Kurt Rahm in terms of because I would have been with the E Street Band, and I don't know if that would have worked in an arena, but I'm certainly disappointed that it never showed up on the Devils and Dust tour. That is also surprising. Yeah, I mean he he did a lot of songs off this record and off the other and off uh, Lucky Town, and I was surprised that that one never showed up. And I do have to wonder if it's a little bit too personal for him to really do. I mean, for me, definitely the title track here is the standout. I, I love when the E Street Band does it. They really made it their own in later years. And the guitar solo he does is awesome. The other tracks, I do like Cross My Heart. I and, do too. I and do too. All or Nothing is fun. And I really, really like I Wish I Were Blind, which is would be my second favorite behind Human Touch. The rest of the record, and we can we can talk about some of these other tracks, it, it, it definitely lacks a spark. Yeah, there's something missing. It's it's there's just something missing. I, I I can't exactly put my finger on it. Uh, but there's I guess maybe there's no cohesion, and some of the songs really don't have the the gravitas that that we expect from a Springsteen album. Well, and gl- something like Gloria's Eyes, it just seems so generic, and and really I hate to use this word, but lesser compared to some of the stuff that came in the years before, especially if you think of like the River. Well, if you're going to compare Gloria's Eyes to, to stuff like, I guess, Two Hearts and You Can Look and Crush on You, I guess it can be a little bit of a lesser thing. But I think the the themes he talks about in the song or sings about, rather, in the song, um, you know, the, about relationships and not and not really trusting the other person. I thought that was I thought that was pretty solid, pretty solid song. You thought Gloria's Eyes was a pretty solid song. I did. I know it's it's not top notch but i also don't think it's you know it's, it's not not at the bottom of the barrel either well look it's all a matter of personal opinion i mean the the one track i think the entire fan base despises on this record real man i at least take it as and i think i said this a couple of weeks ago to me it's like it's fun and it's cheesy i get what he was going for there to me that has a little bit more life to it than than some of these other songs <laughs> i guess that's a way of, of putting it but yeah it was a little too cheesy and uh, maybe it should not have have made the album. Maybe that's 
a situation where you know you get addition by subtraction. You remove that one and maybe a couple couple of others and maybe add back in 30 days out and you probably got you probably got a much better album. The one thing we're skipping over we talked about how real world was such a memorable moment at the Christic shows here on the record. Well, I think it threw a lot of people for a loop when they first heard it. And I'll say the same for soul driver. Did you expect that that was going to be the type of production that would have been on real world? Certainly when I heard this record for the first time, I was pretty stunned. I didn't really know what to expect when we, when we, when we finally got the album and what real world was going to sound like, but I am one of the few people who actually really like that version. <laughs> you are, not, for sure. I'm not saying that I like it more than what we heard at the Christic shows, but he definitely was going for a different feel. To me, it's more it's more like an uplifting, you know, almost gospel-y, which is which is what he did on on the tour with it. Um, you know, but I wonder how do you how do you take a something on a song that is done on piano on solo piano and really and really make it shine on, on a record. My, an example that I'm going to bring up is The Promise. Well, he could have done a version. He obviously had a solo piano version. The world had heard it already. I mean, it, it was not the direction he wanted to go in, but that there's no reason real-world solo piano couldn't have been an album track. It would have been interesting, and I think it probably would have not fit. Uh, at least on on the way that the album was released, I just can't imagine a solo piano song right there between Roll the Dice and All or Nothing at all. Uh, maybe that maybe a solo piano version as the album closer would would have worked better. My feelings towards that record is that it's it's badly overproduced, and there were some great songs that were taken in a direction that probably shouldn't have happened. And in fact, I think Bruce has admitted that himself. I mean, back on the Devils and Dust tour when he did play real world he would occasionally intro it as this is a song i got wrong on the record but i'm gonna make it right here oh yeah real world was a total highlight for me on the devils and dust tour well to me real world was so burned into my soul after hearing the christic version that it just really knocked me for a loop when i finally heard the record yeah i think a lot of people felt that way after listening to those to those christic recordings uh that they really they felt those songs were stronger or were very strong, and they were had high hopes, as I said, for the next album, and those hopes were not were not met. Overall, it's it's certainly not one of his better records. It's not, but you know what? It was an album that I really bonded with emotionally. Um, this one and and luck and Lucky Town. It was it came out this summer. I was. I'll go ahead and admit my age. I was twenty one that summer. It was one of the best summers of my life, and it was the soundtrack. Um, I was working or interning at a radio station. I got to hear Human Touch like, you know, two or three times a day. And I really had, I really, just like the songs of your youth that you just, you just bond with them, even if they're not that good. I get what you're saying there. Yeah, it's uh, some Bruce fans, you know, they, they were old enough so that during their great summers of their, of their teenage or early twenties, they were listening to Born to Run or Darkness or River or USA and, you know, I had Human Touch and Lucky Town. Well, I'm totally with you on Lucky Town. On Human Touch, I mean, certainly I'd have to put it towards the bottom of his records in terms of where it would be ranked. Uh, there are some other alternate songs from Human Touch that later wind up on tracks like Seven Angels and Leave and Train. I think those are a little bit more fun. They're not classics by any means, but they're they're... They're better than some of the tracks on the record. Sad Eyes is a song that should have made the record, in my opinion. 
Yes, I agree with you there. And the one song I'm going to throw in there that should have been on the record is 30 Days Out. Uh, to me, that had the the themes of the album almost as good as any other song on there. I mean, it really rocks so that it would have been perfect in concert. Yeah. Well, and in fact, people asked him about playing 30 Days Out on the tour. Really? And he, yeah, I was there when it happened. And he said they didn't know it. Oh, uh, well, I mean, it, it sounds like it would have been a, it's a tough song to uh, to do to do live, but they did a lot of other new stuff on that tour. So why not that one? Now, I think we should turn to Lucky Town, which is the meteor of the two records. It's certainly very indicative of what was going on in his life at the time. He got married. He had two children. And then these songs pour out of him. And they really do reflect the change of his life. And I think re- yield some really great songs. I agree. Especially the first three songs, Better Days, Lucky Town, and Local Hero. I I love those songs from the get-go, from the first time I heard them. And they really did, Better Days really did, was a happy song. And I like happy songs, so sue me. And, I, and he acknowledged that he had a, he had a rough road in there, and he, but he finally got to a good place where, where he, was, he was happy. I totally agree with you about the first three tracks on this record. I, I think they're monster tracks, and especially the second cut, Lucky Town, the title track, to me, this is a really special song, and the live performances over the years have been just amazing, especially once he started doing it with the E Street Band. To me, there's a line in the song, when it comes to luck, you make your own. I, I love that. And that is a great line, and it really is a good way of, you know, you got to be prepared. <laughs> you got to be prepared, and you got to make your own life. I really feel that. I mean, I think about that all the time. I mean, Luck is hard to obtain, and you got to make it. You 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 force your own luck. That's what he's saying there. Yeah, hard work. Hard work does does make good. Does seem to end up with good luck. That's for sure. Um, and for, I for me, I love local hero, just because he's really that's really his sly smile and a little wink at the whole uh, Santa Claus at the North Pole that he felt about himself when he was when he was in Jersey, and he was able to have some fun with that obviously track number four if i should fall behind which becomes it's probably well certainly the biggest signature piece from the 92 records and is one of the biggest signature pieces of the reunion era both because of how it was done on the reunion tour with the entire band and ultimately there have been other versions that have also been equally compelling yes and uh, fall behind is actually one of the in, in a very small handful of songs that as, that bruce has done on every tour of the reunion era uh even the secret sessions where he did it in, in a waltz oh let's not talk about the secret sessions tour right now <laughs> All right, all right, and I'm certainly a big fan of of Leap of Faith. It was such a such a fun song, and it, it really should have been the next single off these two records. I don't know what they were thinking with 57 Channels, but I think Leap of Faith would have been a fun song to hear blasting off the radio that summer. Yeah, the 57 Channels choice was a real head scratcher. Um, really on, in terms of the rest of this record, I mean, the standout track for me, other than Lucky Town, is Living Proof. Bruce was a new father. He really, I don't have children myself, but he really puts you into that mindset of what it is like to be handed that baby for the first time and the happiness and the fear that is wrapped up together in that. I, I really think that is a truly tremendous song. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I don't have kids, but. I can certainly see where that song would just capture that that feeling pretty much to a T. Now I wanna I wanna ask you a question. Go ahead. Where are you on the big muddy? 
I like the big money. It wasn't, it's not one of my favorites. Uh, you know, this is an album that has quite a number of songs that I really feel strongly about. Lucky Town, as I mentioned, Living Proof, Better Days, Local Hero, Leap of Faith. So, and of course, if I should fall behind, but uh, the big money, I, I don't dislike it, but I can't say that it is an important track for me. I think it, I really like it. I think I like the ambiguity of it. Um, and it, it prompted me to, to read that book, Paris Trout by Pete Dexter. But, you know, it seems to be quite, uh, quite polarizing among the fan base. Yeah, I think that one is the song that fans like the least from this record. But I get what he was going for. And I don't know if it's 100% successful, but I think the album is so cohesive and it all fits together so well. I think it works fine here. I like where it is on the album between Leap of Faith and Living Proof and just in the fact that, you know, life isn't full of just having faith and finding proof. There is some there is some gray areas in there as well. Oh, totally. And that's why I said that I got what he was going for. And that is a part of living. I just don't think the song itself is as strong as some of the other tracks on the record. I got you. I got you. Of course, I'm a I really I really love Souls of the Departed. And I thought that he he captured that trying to keep keep everyone in your life safe. Much like with the Big Muddy, that's not one of my personal favorites on the record. I have nothing against Souls of the Departed. It's just not one of those that rises to a level that I, I really care that passionately about either way. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I just feel it's it's one of the it's it's a rocking song and that I felt that you know the E Street band could could do a, a, a hellacious version of. And they did do good versions of it when the few times that he played it with them. Yeah, the few times. <laughs> like three. Now, and of course, the record ends with a track that is beautiful is the right word. My beautiful yes. reward. He's searching for his reward. And I think he is founded on this record. Bruce has even remarked the times that he felt that like his audience maybe wasn't ready for a record where he was happy. But what a great closing track. I agree. It really it leaves the album it le finishes the album with such a, a peaceful feeling that he's found happiness, or at least he he knows where he's going to find it. And it's it's really is it really is beautiful. I really really love this record. To me, it's it is definitely the most underrated Springsteen album, and I think it gets a little lost because Human Touch is not really thought that highly of by a lot of fans, but this yes. record is, is the real deal. It, yes, it's it 10 songs. It was very personal to him. It was recorded. He recorded the entire record himself, except for the drums, which were played by Gary Malabar. It was done at home in his home studio. You can imagine that he was sitting in the house. He had these two, well, he had one child who had been born and Patty was pregnant with Jessica, who I believe was born in December, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, he's sitting at home. His his entire world has changed and these songs come pouring out of him and they're very meaningful songs. And to me, it's a very special album. And what I will say is that I think that this album has been given the short shrift, except for if I should fall behind in the reunion era, because when the band does these songs, they're, it's, they're great. I mean, they are truly great. They really are. Uh, I, it's it is it's it's been very frustrating that he hasn't pulled out Lucky Town as much as he has, you know, even stuff from from tracks. Um, you know, and certainly Better Days has been one of the most one of the most rare songs, uh, even of the last ten years. He he's certainly shown um, more acceptance of those songs. He certainly played Better Days and Lucky Town and Living Proof a lot more on the last tour on the uh, 
on the river tour. But, uh, you know, prior to that, it was they were few and far between. And it was it was quite frustrating. Oh, I totally agree. And it was like Nirvana for me when I was in Brisbane in 2017. And he played in the same show, Better Days, Lucky Town and Leap of Faith, which that was the first time that had happened, I believe, since the last show of the 92-93 tour. That what happened that he played three songs from that album? Well, those specific three songs. Oh, yes. OK. All right. Yes. yes. Most likely was. I've really enjoyed listening to Lucky Town straight through since they released the remasters in the second box. I think it has a really unique sound to it. And I know a lot of people don't like the production on that album. I don't know if you're included in that. I'm not. But I also but I also want to say that had that album been recorded with the E Street Band, it would have been known as his best albums in Starkness. It would have been very, very good. And we know from the E Street Band versions in later years, uh, Every song, I think, is elevated. Look, they're the E Street Band. Nobody is saying otherwise. But it, this was, I think, a very personal record to him. He obviously had just disbanded the band. And I think that the the fact he recorded it mostly on his own makes total sense to the material. It does. It really does. But at the same time, as I said earlier, you know, listening to that album, you're like, Bruce, he, he fired the band to for this, which is basically the same sound that they had. I can't argue with you there. I think it's just that he was going through something personally. He needed a change. I mean, it was a change of personnel, a change of location, which he got by moving to California. He was just looking for a change. So I don't know if we can sit here and say it was a bad thing that he did this. Well, well, I don't, well, hold on here. I don't want to say that he, I disagree with him firing the band. I obviously it was something he needed to do. It was it was some baggage that he just he just had to let go and had to fly fly solo without for for a while. I'm just saying that in terms of the fans' reaction, either at the time or, and even in the twenty some odd years since, I just wonder if the album had been recorded with the band, would it have been better received by the fans? Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's no question about it. But it was it would have been a very, very, very strong group of songs together with the band. And, you know, I think there were some people who missed out on uh, being able to appreciate these songs because the band wasn't on them. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate. Uh, you know, even when he was recording Born to Run in Darkness and Born USA, it's still Bruce's writing and he's still doing the um, you know, the arranging of these songs. So just because there are different musicians on the album, I think people gave these songs short, uh, a sh the short end of the short stick. Even today, I think when he plays some of these songs, there there's still a resistance by some people to them just because they're from this period when the band was not there, even though the band is now playing them and they're playing them. Lucky Town is, is just really phenomenal with the band living proof when they've had time to rehearse and, and they play it properly like they did at the Meadowlands is really great with the band. Uh, Better Days is, is fantastic. Uh, Leap of Faith is a blast. Obviously, If I Should Fall Behind, we mentioned is a signature song for the entire era. Ideally, Bruce would, would re-record that album, the re-record the album in those 10 songs in a row, just like he did for Darkness. And I think people would just would find it just phenomenal. Oh, yeah. If he did, as even though I said last time, I'm not a huge fan of full album shows. If he did a Lucky Town full album show, I, wherever it was, I would be there. Yeah, me too. I would I would move heaven, heaven and earth to, to be at that show and to be as close to the front as possible. Yeah, if only that were to happen. So that's Human Touch and Lucky Town. 
Of course, Bruce did a world tour behind them that started in June 1992, and we're going to get to that tour in a later episode. And we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. Oh, totally. Now, to wrap things up, let's take care of a little bit of business. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. And as we make this appeal at the end of every episode, please give us five stars if you wish. And that can be, those can be Western, Eastern, Northern, Southern, whatever Any kind stars, of stars you want to give us. We'll take them. All right. On the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at nbtbpodcast. And just a reminder, we're going to take a little bit of a little bit of a break here, and we're going to come back in mid-December to do a decade wrap-up show. That's that should be a lot of fun and pretty long because Bruce did a hell of a lot of stuff in this decade. He really did, unlike those early '90s. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McClain saying thank you for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.